This message today is very special. Uh, Campbell uh, actually asked me to preach this um, some month before he resigned. And uh, at the time I said, look, I'm not quite sure whether I'll be available and left it at that and didn't realise he'd actually booked me in <laughs> and he's not here to defend himself. So but, uh, thanks uh, to Campbell for that and for this great opportunity to bring God's word to you. Before I um, read our text this morning, I'm just going to once again ask God's blessing upon his word. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here today to worship you, to seek your face and to hear your voice. And our Lord, we pray that you would just open our ears and open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous one out of your law. We thank you, Lord God, for, Lord God, for the, the, the scriptures. We thank you for... Uh, your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Oh Lord, we pray as we bow before you now, and as we open your precious word, that you would open our hearts, that we might receive the things that are said. Some may be hard things. We ask, Lord God, for more grace, that we might um, uh, turn from our defiance and our rebellion and accept your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. You have, if you have your Bibles with you or in the, in the corner post, and the, it's, we're going to focus on verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 3. Uh, my title for the sermon this morning is The Father's Rod. The Father's Rod. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, Neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord continues to love, he continues to correct, even as a father, the son in whom he continues to delight. May God, God bless his, his word to our hearts this morning. So this morning I have uh, four main points. We're going to look at the recipients of the father's rod, who he does chasten, uh, my son, he says, the reason for the rod is our inherent defiance against his will and the reaction to the rod, uh, a natural reaction of anger. Um, and then finally, the remedy uh, of the rod, which is Jesus Christ himself. Some time ago, I was working in Sydney and um, had many illustrations from working in Sydney. Um, once again, in the traffic, uh, along the Hume Highway and I had to get across the Hume Highway which is six lanes and you've got to go across three lanes into a side street. I was in a big van, a delivery van and as I pulled up to the intersection to make a right hand turn, the traffic in the opposite direction had banked up. The, in, the lane closest to me and the middle lane were bumper to bumper with a gap in between which I could go through. So the kind lady in the middle lane waved me through. Unbeknownst to myself, a mini miner was travelling down the inner lane uh, and uh, as I just came past the middle lane, I saw the flash of green. It could have been red, I'm colourblind. But I saw a flash of a car in my peripheral vision and floored the van and unfortunately didn't quite make it. And the mini collided into the, the back uh, quarter of the van, wrote the mini off. No one was hurt during the making of this sermon. Um, but I pulled over the side of the road and uh, it occurred to me that this was an act of discipline. For some time, for the last few weeks, 
uh, I was feeling this growing knot in my stomach, somewhere down deep inside. And no matter what I did, it didn't seem to help. I was definitely a Christian at this point. I was a young Christian. And this knot was growing and growing. Obviously, I had or was committing some sin of some sort, but thankfully I'm so old now, I've forgotten everything of the past and I, can't, I won't have to actually confess that to you this morning. But I had been doing the wrong thing and I was conscious of doing the wrong thing and this knot, this, uh, I was tied up on the inside. And as soon as I went through the intersection and this car collided with the van, I pulled over and I sat there and suddenly felt the peace of God. Suddenly felt happy, happy that God had not let me go, happy that God had pulled me up, happy that God had showed, demonstrated his love towards me and had chastened me. Now, the driver of the Mini wasn't too happy about that story, but I was certainly happy. And here in Proverbs chapter 3, here in Proverbs chapter 3, it ends with happiness in verse 13. Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. And that understanding of wisdom is all about his disciplining hand. So our first point this morning is the recipients of his rod. And you notice the word in verse 11, my son, my son. And if only God, God could today write this word in our hearts, in our hearts. If only he could impress the knowledge of his love upon us in such a way that it would move us from our defiance, remove, remove us from our rebellion and to do, the, to do his will. So you notice it's not the commands of a judge, but it's the pleading of a heavenly father with that paternal endearment. My son, my son. And we notice that it's a possessive pronoun, I'm told. I hope my English teacher's not in the room. A possessive pronoun speaks of ownership. If you are Christ, you are his son. If you are Christ, you are, even as Christ was, beloved in his sight. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And God the Father looks upon all those in Christ today, upon you if you're a Christian and you've trusted in Christ. And he loves you with that same love that he loves Christ. In fact, without Christ, he could not love you. Without that mediation, without that sacrifice, without that, uh, that work of his uh, on the cross, he could not extend that love, that wonderful paternal love towards you as his son. So it's possessive. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, the adoption of children literally means the placing of a son. The placing of a son. Now, we know also from Ephesians that this happened in eternity past, before the foundation of the earth was laid. The Father gave to Christ the Son the names for whom um, he would redeem and would dwell with him forever. And if you are his son this morning, that's your lot. That's your inheritance. So the first part of the reception of his rod is that it's possessive. Secondly, it's exclusive in Hebrews 12 and verse 6 to 8, note, I want you to note the, and I'm using the authorised version today, 
in reading because it actually it, it emphasises the present continuous tense of all the verbs. Sorry again for the English lesson, but a verb is a doing word. And each of these verbs I'm going to read is in the present continuous tense. And I'll translate as I read the passage. For whom the Lord continues to love, he continues to chasten and continues to scourge every son whom he continues to receive. If ye endure chastening, God continues to deal with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father does not continue to chasten? But if ye be without chastening, whereof all are partakers, then are you illegitimate, and you are not sons. So the father's rod is exclusive. The father's love is exclusive. He has a particular love for his people, those who are bought by blood. We are a blood-bought assembly of God's people. We have been purchased by, uh, with, at great cost to God. The cost was the life of his own son. The cost was his, his perfect life that kept his law and uh, glorified him with every word and every action. It's an exclusive love. In 1 John 3 and verse 1 it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world does not continue to know us. So as you gathered on Christmas Day with unsaved friends, there's a marked difference between you and them. There's a marked difference between Christmas without Christ and Christmas with Christ. There's a marked difference between eternal life without Christ and eternal death, uh, sorry, eternal life with Christ and eternal death without Christ. There's such a distinction. The world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, and the Greek word here is agapitos, it means divinely loved ones, the recipients of divine love. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So it's both possessive, his chastening, his rod, is both possessive and it's exclusive. And then thirdly, it's without distinction. And I've added this for the ladies who rebuked me last time I preached and said, well, we were preaching on my son and some of the ladies, I'm not looking at anyone, Sally, but some of the ladies mentioned, <laughs> what about us? You know, how come it's sonship? Well, the sonship's very important, but his sonship uh, is without distinction and his, 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 his chastening is without distinction. Sonship indicates inheritance. Sonship in, indicates inheritance. You are, you are to inherit the earth. You are to inherit life, the eternal life, John calls it in uh, the books of John. Life, the eternal life is your heritage. He maintains your lot, David says, and he is your portion forever. You inherit God. You inherit all that he is and all that he has. Uh, so your sonship is, uh, if you like, generic. It's without distinction. In Romans 8 and verse 17, it says, if children, if children, 
then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, which literally means you know what they're like. So that's how you've got to treat them well. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. That's quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? Giving your wife honour and respect and if you don't, the consequence is your prayers are going to be hindered. So we better get that right. So the love of God and the discipline of God is without distinction, it's without exception, it's possessive. Are you his son? Ephesians 2 and verse 3 says, Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as others, but God who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, ye have been saved. So there we were, children of wrath. Now we are the sons of God, according to his glorious plan and providence in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you his son? Do those words ring true? Or is there that not still in your heart? Uh, that uh, tells you that you're not quite right. Well, perhaps the day's the day you need to embrace him and own him as Lord and as God, as Saviour, as King. So firstly, uh, we have the recipients of God's rod, his beloved sons in whom he delights. And then secondly, we have the reason for the rod in Proverbs 3 and verse 9, and it's no coincidence that Verse 9 comes before verse 10. Usually 9 comes before 10. See, I'm good at maths as well as English. And in verse 9, note this, and from verse 1 down to verse 9 is a series of commands and benefits, commands and benefits, commands and benefits. And here in um, verse 9, I think this stirs up a little bit of defiance. Honour the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase, so shall your bars be filled with plenty and your presses burst out with new wine. So here in verse 9, God claims everything. He claims everything we are, all of our substance. And we're told not just to give it to him, not just in an act, but we're told to honour him with it. You see, we can go through the act. We can give to the Lord our tithes and offerings each week. We can give him service. But often the honour is missing. Often the heart is missing. The feet are in the right place. The hands are doing the right thing. The mind even might be thinking the right thing, but he has not got our heart. Some idol's taken its place. Some physical thing that uh, he has created. Perhaps, perhaps something he gave to you. A husband, a wife, a child, a house, a car has moved from being something to honour Christ to something that dis dishonours him. So the reason for the rod, he stirs up defiance. Honour the Lord 
with all your substance. Give him the first fruits of all your increase. They belong to him. And then then the next verse, of course, my son, do not despise his chastening. So while setting the grounds for uh, his own honour, he he addresses uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, wanting something uh, that is not yours. Now, I made the biggest mistake of my life at Christmas. I bought one of my grandchildren, or two of my grandchildren, the same toy, a little puppy fluffy toy that barks quite quietly because I was having compassion on my children and uh, made a little barking noise anyway. So we gave one of our grandchildren a little toy at our place that we went to our Christmas lunch with the rest of the family and we gave the same toy to one of the other little grandbabies. And of course, as soon as our first granddaughter with the first uh, puppy saw the second granddaughter get her puppy, it's mine, I want it, give it to me. You see, it stirred up covetousness. It's you wanting something that's not yours. It's you wanting something that belongs to some, someone else. Honour the Lord with all your substance. Give unto him the first fruits of your increase. I'm going to use now an example in the, in the third point. The reason for the rod? The reason for the rod is our defiance. And we find an example of this in the book of Jonah. And I'm going to skip a stone across Jonah and uh, bring out some practical applications here. So we have the reaction to the rod um, from Jonah. Jonah coveted his reputation. We notice in chapter 1, and it's a lovely little outline, it's quite simple, easy to remember. Chapter 1 is Jonah running from God. Chapter 2 is Jonah running to God. Chapter 3 is uh, Jonah running with God. And chapter 4 is Jonah running against God. Now in Jonah we see a picture of every one of us here this morning. We see the same defiance, the same inherent rebellion against God's will and God dealing with it with his rod. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee from unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish. Many Christians today are on this same boat heading towards Tarshish. God in his providence, God in his wisdom has given you instruction, he's given you direction and you've decided, I know better. That's, that's not right for me. Now, I can make a better choice. It might be someone you marry. It might be a choice of a career. It might be the place where you worship. It might be uh, any number of things where God gives you clear instruction uh, and counsel from his word, and you've decided, not me. I'm going my way. And you're on board a ship heading towards Tarshish. So the Lord sent out the first arm of his discipline, a great wind into the sea and there arose a mighty tempest in the sea so the ship was like, uh, like to be broken. And then we find, and you know the story, the mariners discover Jonah's in the boat, discover that he worships the god of the sea, which is a worry, they're in the sea, and the god of the land. And Jonah says, throw me overboard, it's the only way to fix this. So he throw him off and it says uh, again, the Lord prepared a great fish 
or I, in the margin I've got a great sardine, a great fish, it doesn't say whale, but a great fish to swallow up Jonah. At that very moment as he hits the water, the fish swallows Jonah and gives him the, the first all-expenses-paid submarine trip to Nineveh and uh, finds himself in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And it's in the belly of the fish that, that Jonah sees something so important in the Christian life. He, how do I word this? He doesn't blame second causes for his problems. We do that so often. We blame this disease or that, that circumstance. We blame this person and so on. He, Jonah doesn't blame second causes. He says in chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 3, For you cast me into the deep. It was the mariners. They were all at sea. They were in a storm. But he says, You, Lord, cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods come past me about. All your billows, all your waves have compassed me. See that? Jonah sees the hand of the Father in all the circumstances in his life. He knew he was guilty. He'll proclaim his own innocence in a moment, but he knew he was guilty. I'm sure that knot was in there somewhere, hidden down deep. And, uh, but here, here, sorry about this, he, here, he sees God's hand. Then I said, I'm cast out of your sight and I'll look again to your holy temple. And uh, some wonderful words here. He says in verse 8, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Are you doing that? Are you on a ship heading towards Tarshish, as Jonah was? So he's running with God in chapter 2, then in, running, and in, cha- in chapter 3 he's running... Um, He's running with God in chapter 3 and he preaches to Nineveh and lo and behold, the Ninevites repent. (laughs) And Jonah is not happy, Jan. He is not happy. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. He was all at sea. He was wroth. He was so upset. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray, O Lord, uh, was not this my saying when I was yet in the country? Therefore I fled uh, before unto Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and and of great kindness, and you repent, and you repent, you would repent of this evil. Now there's a gap between verse 2 and verse 3 where the angels in heaven are laughing. They're they're laughing with belly laughs at Jonah's response. Sure, Jonah, come on. Therefore, now, our Lord, take up beseech you my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And then verse 4 of chapter 4 asks a very searching question. Then said the Lord, do you well to be angry? Do you well to be angry? And then Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and made, and made himself a booth and sat under it, under its shadow, Till he might see what might become of the city. Maybe the Lord would change his mind. And the Lord God prepared a, uh, the old English says a goad, I think it's a vine or a plant, a large plant. And he made this plant 
come up over Jonah that it might be a, a shadow over his head to, to de deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the vine. But God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, it smote the, the vine and it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry? You see that? Twice God's emphasised this. Do you well to be angry? What's the cause of your anger? What is the problem here? And there is a problem here. It's a problem that we all share with uh, God's sovereignty, particularly in adversity, particularly when the vehement east wind blows and a great fish carries us to a place we don't want to go. When uh, a vine grows up, but then a worm destroys the vine, then the sun beats down their head. See, when things are adverse, we get angry. And we're angry because we don't see his hand. We're angry because we don't understand that he is sovereign and in control of all these things. Are you angry with God? This is his reaction um, to the rod. Then our third point is the remedy. And this uh, we take from Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews 12, the writer is drawing from Proverbs 3 to address the people of his day who were under persecution and suffering, no doubt. And he gives us the remedy to the rod. And first of all, in verse 1, he addresses, sometimes when we are chastened by God, we feel alone. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I've just been diagnosed with some terrible um, life-threatening disease. It's me and me only. I'm on my own. And so the writer begins with, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There's a cloud of witnesses of people who are in heaven, who we knew, some of them, um, and I met many people in heaven, I must be getting old, um, who are there now, and they, they have run the course, they have run the race, they've seen God's hand in adversity, and they've acknowledged it like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with all this, Job did not sin with his lips, neither did he charge God with folly. So he acknowledged God's sovereign hand in his life. And God is sovereign in your life and, and in the control of all the events that concern you. And as he looks upon you this morning, he looks through the eyes of love. And not only does he love you demonstrably, demonstrably, can't quite say that, no, neither, uh, not only does he demonstrate his love towards you in that Christ gave his life for you, not only does God do that, but he declares his delight of you. He makes a declaration. So, uh, Solomon again in Ecclesiastes says, a man not, knows neither love nor hatred by anything that befalls him. If you look at someone who's suffering an ill sickness, you might say, well, how can God love that person? See, we're not, his love is not known by things that befall us, but he says, rather, his love is known by declaration. He declares his delight, not only his acceptance, but his divine favour and his admiration. God admires us in Christ, not only forgives us, 
He loves us. So the remedy we find, and in, sorry, verse 1, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, not only did he give us the seed of faith, but he brings it to completion, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, he despised Christ, despised the shame of the cross. He was nailed naked to that cross. He was whipped beyond measure, and his visage was marred more than any man. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was nailed, he was pierced, he was crowned with thorns, and this he did uh, for us in Isaiah 53, predicting this, this work. And what's it say in verse 3? For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Here is his very creation, crucifying him. Crucifying him. And in Isaiah 53 it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Here it is, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He bore a, a price he didn't have to pay, uh, a price we couldn't pay for ourselves. And then in, in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says again, Yet it pleased the Lord, the Father, to bruise him, the Son. He has put him to grief. He, the Father, has put Christ to grief. And you wonder sometimes, why am I suffering this? Why am I suffering that? Why is there so much adversity in my life? Why aren't things working out? If you looked at the cross, you'd have to say, how can the Father love the Son and torture him in such a manner, in such a way, even in a cruel way? But here, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. So the Father was in Christ reconciling us to himself on that great day. And through all that adversity and all that chastening and all that uh, bruising and uh, torture that Christ endured on that day, the Father's love was there, perce perceiving the seed that would one day come. So Christ is the answer. We need to consider him. And then on, just on a practical note, there's a few little prat practical things that the writer adds in here. He says in verse 11, now, we ch now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. That's strength. So here's some practical steps. If you have been defying God and he's been disciplining you and you have, you have been angry and uh, annoyed at God's sovereignty in your life, the first thing you need to do is strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. The only way to strengthen yourself in the Lord is to strengthen yourself in God's word. In Psalm 119 and verse 75, David says... 
Your judgments are right and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Your judgments toward me are right and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That should be the starting point of every Christian when faced with adversity. You start with that point. God is just and right in all that he does. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. He can't act in an unrighteous way towards you. Otherwise, he would not be God. So to strengthen ourselves, we must strengthen ourselves in the word of God, in his will. Read it, meditate upon it, think about it often. And then it says, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame is turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Make straight paths for your feet. I wish it said, Phil, I want you to go to this place and preach. Or, Phil, I want you to start this new business over here. I want you to have this career or marry this person. That's too late. Or whatever it might be. I wish it said that and gave the detail, but God very wisely does not. He just gives us the principle and says, hey, you need to apply that. Make straight paths for your feet. How do you know they're straight? You'll know they're straight because they align with God's word. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, mentioned today, John Bunyan, great preacher, wrote over 60 uh, books in his lifetime, wrote this wonderful epic, Christian, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. If you're looking for a book for your children, uh, get a pictorial version of that and read it to them as I did with mine and uh, a wonderful way to teach them the Bible and, uh, and principles of truth. But John Bunyan explains that Christian went down a certain way called Bypath Meadow. Bypath Meadow was a way that was right alongside the right way but it wasn't the right way. It deviated ever so slightly from the right way at first. Then it deviated more and deviated more until finally it came to a place called Doubting Castle. And inside Doubting Castle, there was a giant called Giant Despair. This should be the children's story. Giant Despair. And inside, Christian's taken captive and he's taken down to the dungeon and he's sitting in amongst the bones of many Christians who'd perished in Doubting Castle. And he sits there contemplating his end and he remembers, I have something. I reached into his jacket, pulled out a key and that key was faith. Faith undid every door in Doubting Castle. And so he let himself out, went back to the right way and continued his pilgrimage. Christian, you need to lay aside every weight of the sin which does so easily beset you and run with patience the race that is set before you. Apply the key of faith Make straight paths for your feet. You're probably thinking about the coming year, wondering what's going to happen. Perhaps you've been fretting about the coming year and wondering what's going to happen. You haven't got a job, you haven't got a house, whatever your circumstances might be. You might be unwell. Um, and this is saying, listen, make straight paths for your feet. And then, so, and, then, and then in verse 14, not only are you to strengthen yourself, straighten your paths, but you're also to strive for peace with all men. Strive with peace for all men. Make 2021, make 2021 a year of reconciliation. I have a brother who I haven't spoken to for 20-odd years. He cut off the family when we became Christians. And just recently, uh, one of my daughters found his son on Facebook, made contact, and my sister got in contact with him and he said, I don't want anything to do with my parents or Phil. I'm happy to talk with my sister. And uh, perhaps this is the year that I'll get to reconcile with my own brother. 
The problem with life is we go through life, <coughs> excuse me, and we leave unresolved battles, unresolved relationships. We're just happy to hide our head and move on. And when we don't want to pay the price, and it might be humility, it might be a number of things, but we need to make an effort, strive to be at peace with all men. We need to make peace with each other, make peace in our in marriages, peace in our, with our children, peace at work, at play, wherever we may be. Strengthen ourselves, straighten our paths, strive for peace with all men. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, not that he can lose it, but they fail to get there. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. There's a despite of God's chastening, there's a despairing of God's chastening and there's a defilement. If we continue in that road, we do not address our anger and we do not subject ourselves to the Father of spirits and live, if we do not surrender to him, if we do not give him our all, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We need to do that. Lest we see the progression, a regression, despite, um, despair, defilement. The man who despites and hates God, hates what he does to him. Yes, a Christian's capable of hating God, but he hates what God's doing to him. The man who despairs under that chastening rod, he will eventually, that bitterness will rise, that worm will canker, and it will destroy everyone else around you. You need to deal with it. Like Achan's sin, it needs to be, it needs to be exposed. It needs to be dealt with, lest the camp of Israel doesn't continue. Maybe our church is like that. Maybe there are things we need to repent of. Maybe as Christians there are things in our life. Maybe there are things even now that are uh, pulling that rain within you. And there was a verse that I did forget to mention. I think I've written it down here somewhere. Concerning the rains. Psalm 7 and verse 9. The righteous God tries the hearts and the reins. Psalm 139 and verse 13. For you have possessed my reins. He just gives it a bit of a tug at times. Perhaps this morning God's giving you a bit of a tug. He's perhaps waking you up. Perhaps he's giving you a bit of a nudge. Perhaps you can see that the things that have happened over the past few months haven't happened by chance. And it's often the, the error of Christians is often we blame Satan for all the things that are, uh, are bad in our lives or adverse in our lives and we bless God for all the good things. Satan's the author of all the bad things and God's the author of all the good things. Well, look at Job. Read Job 1. Satan wasn't even interested in Job and God said to Job, have you considered my servant Job? He challenges him to attack Job and restricts him. That rod is measured and weighed with absolute exactness. You will not touch his flesh. So Satan goes and removes his family, removes his business, removes all of his possessions and leaves him. And then God challenges him again on another day. Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And he says, well, he's only serving you because he's healthy. Touch his flesh, touch his bone and he will curse you. And so you, Satan, go and touch him and we'll see what happens. And of course, you know the story. Job was scarred, marred, infected, 
His friends saw him coming from a distance and they could not recognise him and wept. And what's the Lord, what is Job's response? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not with his lips, neither did he charge God with folly. I pray God might bless his word to your hearts this morning and bless the rod. Bless the rod that can do what nothing else can do. Bring us closer to Christ to consider him. I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, I pray you'll forgive my stammering lips, Lord. I pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit might take your word this morning. He might impress these words upon our hearts. My son, my son, what a wonderful thing to be loved by you, to, to have your delight, to have your honour, respect, admiration. Lord, we don't deserve it. Only in Christ, only in Christ can we stand before you. And we stand indeed and we come boldly under the throne of grace we might obtain mercy in time of need. And for each of us, Lord God, in all of our various circumstances and trials, I pray, Lord God, that we might each find, find you, Lord, see your hand as Jonah saw your hand. All your billows and waves have gone over me and acknowledge it and bless your holy name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.